Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him alone who does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever, and brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sion, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as an heritage for his steadfast love endures forever, a heritage to Israel his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state, for his steadfast love endures forever, and rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever, who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. All right, good morning, everyone. Hope you all are well and had a great Thanksgiving long weekend. I was celebrating with my family that we, this is the second year in a row we got to play kickball on Thanksgiving Day, which is, in Minnesota, it's not a guarantee, you know, but uh, last year we had that warm, actually last year we played kickball on Thanksgiving and Christmas Day, both. Isn't that nuts? It was that warm. I'm hoping for a repeat, but it, there's, it probably won't happen. But if you're brand new to Minnesota, um, last year was pretty amazing. You missed out. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll luck out again and have a warm one, but uh, starting off good. As it is, but anyway, hope you guys had a great weekend. It's good to see you. If you're if you're visiting today for the first time, we're glad you're here, and I want to catch you guys up to speed a bit on where we've been preaching-wise for the past several weeks and, and months. We started a Philippians series, a book on the New Testament book of Philippians in September. We just finished that last week, 
And uh, we are going to jump into, uh, this week we're going to take a break and look at Psalm 136 uh, as a standalone sermon. But next week we're going to look at uh, Matthew. We're going to start a book in the series of the Gospel of Matthew uh, next week, which will take us for quite a while. And we're excited about that, talked a lot about that, prayed about it as overseers, and feel like that's something God would have us do. And which we have not done yet as a church. We have not been in a gospel, uh, an entire gospel anyway. We spent some time in the book of John uh, years ago, but not the whole thing. And uh, even if we had, we would have all forgotten anyway. <laughs> so going back into it, I actually considered doing John again because it's that great. And uh, if we did, you know, it would have been great to do again. But we're going to look at Matthew. So next week we'll look at Matthew, some interpretational issues, some themes, motifs, some cool things Matthew does that no other book of the Bible really does. Uh, or at least a few others do, and so it's unique in a lot of ways. We'll talk about that and introduce the whole series next week. It'll be a different week in that regard, but um, just so you guys know, that's where we're, where we're headed. Uh, so a couple words, though, about the Psalms. So today is going to be an open mic day. We call these standalone sermon days open mics or chances for our overseers uh, to preach on whatever they want, and I usually like to do Psalms because I think preaching all 150 Psalms at one time would be a little much, as great as the Psalms are, would be a bit much uh, to do all in a row, so I, I like to go back and, and do this here. Uh, a couple words in the Psalms as a whole, uh, it's not uncommon for people to be pretty familiar with the Psalms, even if people are not that familiar with the Bible, to be somewhat familiar with the Psalms because they're quoted so much and they're, and they're referenced, and because they're very accessible. Meaning, and what I mean by that is even if you're not very familiar with a lot of the Old Testament or you might be scared off by a book of, like, like Leviticus or some of the prophets that are a bit harder to interpret, the Psalms are accessible because we can read them and associate with them. Because it's not that hard to empathize with having really great days and really terrible days, on the other hand. And the Psalms do both of that. Uh, they, they, they talk about an individual's, the psalmist's relationship with God or maybe corporate Israel's relationship with God on great levels and on, and on really hard days as well. And so it's, the Bible's really raw and honest. That's what makes the Bible so great, I think. It's extremely raw and honest, and the Psalms in particular, because they're poetic, and, and they just talk very honestly and openly about struggling and waiting for God and being in trouble on the one hand, but then having uh, great times of rejoicing and thanksgiving and, and, and thankfulness uh, as well, which we're going to talk about today uh, too. So that's one of the purposes of the Psalms, is just to express the relationship between God and his people in song and poetry. But as we've talked about a lot in the past two, going through the Psalms and other portions of the Old Testament, another greater purpose of the Psalms is to serve a prophetic purpose, a forward-looking purpose. And so one of the purposes today, what I want to do, and like we always do here at Hiawatha through preaching and teaching, is to not just preach a passage, but to teach a bit about it as well, and to show uh, how the Psalm plays a role in the greater plan of redemption uh, all throughout the biblical narrative. How, in other words, it points ahead to Jesus Christ. And so, if, for example, if you look in the New Testament where the New Testament authors quote the Psalms, they always look for Jesus in them. And a lot of times throughout history, people have referred to the Psalms, therefore, as the songbook of Christ because they're really about Jesus and they're about the New Testament Christian experience as well. So they're prophetic, they're anticipatory, they're foreshadowing about Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. And so uh, on both levels, the Psalms have a lot to say to us. And so we're going to see today in Psalm 136 how both these things play out. So... What I want to do is look at three affirmations, three things we can affirm about God and his character, about us as sinners saved by grace, and about what we should do in light of uh, this psalm, Psalm 136 today. And so the first thing I want to look at is this idea of giving thanks, which we see come up right away in the psalm. Uh, give thanks to God or give thanks to the Lord. I like how it says the God of gods. And the Bible says that sometimes, even though it says elsewhere there are no other gods, there's one God, but here in verse 2, he is the God of all gods. Or in other words, the gods that people just make up or carve out of stone or look to, 
thinking that they're real and that they're going to do something for them. God, God, the true God, the biblical God, is the God of that fake God. He's the God over it, over that thing. And it can't, it's impotent. It can't do anything for us, but the God of the universe can. He's, he's real. He's powerful. He's alive. He's the God of all gods. So in Psalm, or in Psalm 136, right away at the beginning, really throughout the psalm, you see it streamed through it, but uh, right away we see this idea of give, giving thanks to God because his love endures forever. So the first thing we see is this command. Giving thanks is a command. It's something we are to do. Remember that. It's something the Bible calls us to do. And we, we don't sometimes think of wor- worship. Sometimes worship we do, but giving thanks is something that we should have on the daily to-do list as Christians, but it needs to be there. Right alongside key virtues as Christians, like love and thanksgiving, or love and uh, humility and generosity, is this idea of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is a deep, deep Christian value. But we also see in this psalm that uh, it's not enough just to say, give thanks to God, right? Because it's, that's a little bit too vague. And the Bible can say that, and that's okay, of course. And we, we can say that. We can affirm that to each other and hear the Bible call us that. That's great. But here, right in the psalm, we don't see it stop there. We don't just see the psalmist say, give thanks to God, because it begs the question for what, right? Why give thanks to God? What's he like? What has he done? Because whenever we give thanks to each other, someone does something for us, Right? They're, they act in a certain way or they provide something for us or they do something that uh, we give thanks to them for. It. And it's no, it's no uh, exception in this case as well with God. He he's, he's, is a certain way in his character and he's done something in the world that we, would, we should ascribe thanksgiving to uh, him because of it. So what has he done? Why should we give thanks to him? The Bible's quick to answer this. It's very concrete here right away in the first few verses. It says, give thanks because or for his love endures forever. And that's amazing just to stop and think about for a second. Very easy to read over that. Think about what we're saying and reading when we say that. God is real, and he's loving, and his love never, ever ends. It's forever. God's love never, ever ends. It's eternal. It's reason enough to stop whatever we're doing, I think, regularly, and just remember this. And many things. This is not the only characteristic of God. Here in the psalm, it's the main one. But it's reason enough to stop whatever we're doing regularly, and remember that the Bible calls us to do this, not just to give thanks, but to give thanks to God that he is a loving God and that it's eternal. And we'll talk more about the nature of his love here in a minute, but uh, before we get there, note the repeated phrase. So I've got the fours highlighted here. Give thanks to God because his steadfast love or his enduring love endures forever. And so it's not hard to miss the, uh, the main theme here, right? It's like it's obvious that the main theme of the psalm is God is loving and that it never, ever, ever ends. And, and it's probably the case that when this psalm was read back in uh, Israel's day, and even in the first century when Christians picked up on this and started reading it in light of their worship as well after Christ, that a teacher or a reader would read the first part of the, you know, each stanza or verse, and then the, the gathered community would read that last part, and they would all call out, his love endures forever. And they would keep hearing themselves say that to each other, and so that they'd hear their own voice saying it. They'd affirm that to themselves because it's so important to understand that his love, it's, it's real, first of all, but that it never, ever, ever stops. So uh, his love never, ever ends. And it's, that's the main theme. God is not just loving, but he's eternally loving. Think about it. Remember that. And why is that worthy of praise? Because all other loves that we experience in this life, every single one of them are not like that. They might kind of resemble it a little bit, but every other love we experience in the world, no matter how great, is not eternal period. No matter how great marriage is, marriages end in death every single time, right? They don't last forever. 
And so when we sing, we just sang about this. We're going to sing about this to end our service today too. But when we sing about the foreverness of anything that pertains to God at all, it's not unlike any type of that characteristic that we experience on a human horizontal level. We experience generosity, but God's generosity lasts forever. We experience love, and it can be great. It can be God-given even. We should, we should thank God for it. We'll talk about that later, but it never lasts eternally. And so it's not like, in that way, the love God gives us. And so their lesser loves doesn't mean that they're unimportant, uh, but they are, all loves are lesser. And on top of this, human love is also imperfect, right? So no matter how great love is, it's always at least marred a little bit by imperfection. Adultery and divorce and other types of faithlessness are very commonplace in the world, almost to the point where it taints our, our, our view of love, right? We just expect it to happen sometimes. We might sit in weddings and think, well, I've been divorced or I haven't seen love in a perfect way at all, and so I don't, I, it's hard for me to get behind this marriage and expect it to last throughout their lifetime because it didn't work out that way for me. And I've seen so many divorces happen. You might think something like that. But whatever it be, adultery, divorce, other types of faithlessness, they're commonplace. And so what makes this type of love radical then is that when we experience faithlessness, like divorce, like adultery, like different types of, of, of faithlessness in the world, whether we see it or experience it firsthand, we can look at that and say, God's love is not like that. God's love, biblically, is unlike that. That's a marred, imperfect type of love. But the Bible says God's love's perfect, but it also will last forever. It won't end. It won't be revoked it's amazing that this is the case. Don't take that for granted. It's incredibly reassuring that this is the case and that God gives us this type of love. It's not earned. It's given completely by him. So when love ends then, we experience love that ends in life, it always hurts. Always. Divorce hurts. Adultery hurts. Faithlessness hurts. Imperfect love hurts. And I think it hurts for a reason. It's supposed to tell us in that moment that that's not the ultimate perfect type of love in the universe. It should make us long for something else, a greater type of love that won't end that way, that will never, ever incorporate that type of love or that type of faithless love into, uh, into reality. So God's love's perfect. It's a love that will never end for eternity, and it's love for us. So that's the first affirmation here that we get in the psalm. That's the biggest picture one. You are loved by a, by a God the biblical God, and that love, his love for you will never, ever, ever, ever end. Isn't that amazing? Believe that. Be reassured by that. Ground yourself on that in hard times and good. He loves you, and it will never, ever, ever be revoked. Some of you have never heard that before. Others of you have just forgotten that. And Psalm 136 reminds you of it. That's what I love about the Bible is it's, it's a big book. And God, who's the author of the Bible, through and through, tells us that, not just tells us that he exists, but he tells us what he's like. He wants us to know what he's like. Always remember that in the word. He's, he's telling us the story of himself, but through and through it, he's telling us that this is my characteristic. This is what I'm like. And I want you to believe not just in a, a nameless, faceless, abstract God. The, the Bible gets very concrete with who he is. He's a loving God and he's an eternally loving one. And this is part of his characteristics for us that we're to, we are to remember. So remember that. I think it was A.W. Tozer who said, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What you think about, the first thing that comes to mind when you think about God, the biblical God, is the most important thing about you. And I think he's right. Because God is the most important thing. And what we think about characteristic-wise and about what he's done for us in the world is the most important thing about us, right? 
So we have to know these things, and the Bible is not, sh- not, not sh- sheepish about this. It screams it from the mountaintops, that there is a God, and this is what he's like. He's loving, and he loves us in a very specific kind of way. And so we have to make sure we're accurate about what God is like and what he has done in the world, and that in, in, in assigning his love, or mixing his love, blending this, this description of love, divine love, with uh, those types of things. So that's the first thing. Give thanks to God because his steadfast love endures forever. But we have to go past that, right? What is the nature of this love? We go past it because the Bible goes past it. The psalm doesn't end here. In other passages in the Bible that talks about God's love, doesn't just end with God is, is love. It just describes what, what the nature of that love is. And so let's see what he says after this. The second point then, the second affirmation is God's love is an active, creative, saving kind of love. God's love is an active, creating, saving kind of love. So the psalmist then, just to summarize what he does here, uh, it's a longer psalm, but he unpacks then how God's love has looked in biblical history in primarily three ways. So there's basically three sections after this first section, this introductory section about giving thanks that we just read or looked at in the first three verses. There's basically three sections to it. And it's interesting, after, after this psalm, Psalm 137 serves as kind of a fourth section too, which we won't get to today, but if we, were, if we had time and we're in more of a psalm series, we'd look at that in conjunction uh, with this psalm as well. Sometimes the psalms do that. They're not all psalms unto, him, all, unto themselves. The order of the psalms are inspired as well. And so sometimes one psalm will pose a question or begin to unpack something, and the next psalm right after it will, will flesh that out even more or answer the question that's posed. It's really cool. So whenever you read a psalm, sometimes read what's right before it and what's right after it uh, to get it in context. Uh, It's pretty neat how God has laid those out. But anyway, three sections here primarily in the psalm. The first is creation in verses 4 to 9. The second is the story of the exodus or Israel's deliverance from Egypt in verses 10 to 16. And the third is the conquest or how God enabled Israel behind Joshua to enter the promised land after they escaped and uh, came up out of Egypt uh, 40 years later after the wilderness wanderings in verses 17 to 26. That's the three pi- primary uh, uh, outlines or sections of uh, the psalm. So really what the psalmist is doing is remembering and thanking God for creating the world, uh, himself included, everything in it, for delivering Israel, secondly, from Egyptian slavery, and being with them in the wilderness between their exodus and entering the promised land, and then helping them enter the promised land, again, behind Joshua, striking down their enemies in the process. And so when you read in the psalm about God killing enemies and killing kings and the king of Og and the king of Bashan, those were kings in the wilderness that were a threat to Israel finally getting into this promised land that God was giving them. And so throughout, repeatedly throughout their time in the desert after they came up out of Egypt, that's recorded as well, how God struck down Pharaoh, that's all Egypt stuff. But then after that, time after time, God would deliver them and remove these threats, these other people that were trying to destroy them and prevent them from getting into the land that God was especially present in. His promised land, that's where we get the idea of promised land, is it's a promised land that God gave, that God promised to give his people. And so it's a problem that they're not there at one point. He's, he's bringing them back. But really this is a synopsis then. It's a brief synopsis of the early parts of the Old Testament. So if you're brand new to the Bible, this is how the Bible begins. It's a story of creation. God creates all things, but then sin enters the world through Adam and Eve. Uh, as, as, a, as a response to that, God stays committed to creation. He identifies the people Israel to ultimately bless the world through because Christ would come through Israel. And part of Israel's story is that they find themselves in Egyptian slavery. That's where the Exodus comes in. The second book of the Bible, the Exodus, talks about that story. God sends a deliverer, Moses, to rescue them and brings them up out of Egypt. 
And then they spend years in the wilderness before finally entering the promised land and conquesting uh, the, the remaining peoples that are in that land and threatening their inhabitants of it behind Joshua, who was Moses' successor. And so really you have the psalmist just remembering these things. He would have written this hundreds of years after all these things, the, la- the last of these things happened. So he's looking back and remembering them, like we do. We look back to the cross as Christians. We'll connect these things here in a minute, but we are people of remembrance. The people of God all throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, are people of remembrance, constantly. That's why we gather, to remember what God has done. I think you even mentioned that too, Alan, in the Psalm 50 you mentioned. It's constant. I mean, just sometimes read through the Psalms and look for how many times remembering and looking back to something occurs. It's constant. It was a major part of worship for Israel in the Old Testament and, and therefore uh, for the church, true Israel, in the new. But the psalmist is doing that. He's remembering, uh, in a nutshell, past salvation events. If you, if you don't know much about these things, and a lot of that's over your head, just get that. The psalmist is remembering past salvation events for Israel, and seeing God's love in them. Seeing God's love is manifold, but one of the ways it occurred is when he saved us. And he's remembering how God did that in many and various ways in a cool poetic manner hundreds of years prior from his vantage point in history. So one question then we have to ask is, what does this have to do with us, right? This is where the Psalms can get tricky. We can start off great in verses 1 to 3 and say, yeah, I've got a lot to be thankful for. I should be thankful because God has loved me. But then we get to these portions about the Exodus and and their time about killing, uh, killing kings and how God did that and entering the promised land, and it gets a bit abstract and hard to resonate with, right? And so we have to ask ourselves, what does this have to do with us as Christians? And to answer that, we've got to step back a bit and understand how this passage, like I talked about before to begin the sermon, fits in with the greater biblical narrative. How does it point ahead to Christ? How does it pertain to our experience as Christians? And Jesus himself is really helpful here uh, in Luke 24, when he says, and this is after his resurrection, one of the uh, gospel accounts in the New Testament records this, Luke, when Jesus says, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled, which is an idiom, essentially, to refer to every part of the Old Testament. So when Jesus is saying the law of Moses and the prophets in the Psalms, he's referring, referring to the three major sections of the Old Testament as the Jews would have understood it. So he's basically saying, everything's about me. Everything concerns me. Everything written about me in them is, is being fulfilled here in your presence. And it had to be the way. It had to be that way. They were not meant to be writings unto themselves. They were really always about me, and I'm here to, to be the goal of them. And so he says some other things in context there that are wonderful as well along the same lines. But here's where he talks about the Psalms. Everything written about me in the Psalms uh, must be fulfilled. So when we go back to Psalm 136 and read it from a distinctly Christian perspective, which we should do, and again, you see every time a New Testament author does this, it's a great exercise too, by the way, is to look at every time a Psalm's quoted in the New Testament, look at how they handle it. Look at how they interpret it. It's always about Christ. It's always to encourage the church in light of what Jesus has done for them. Always to help them see their story uh, in light of what uh, first occurred to Israel and how God blessed them in the former ways in the Old Testament. So when we go back to 136 then, Psalm 136, and read this from a distinctly Christian perspective, have those, those Jesus-tinted goggles on, as it were, uh, to see him uh, in these letters, in these words, we see that these saving works of God, so the exodus and conquest, even the creation, these things the psalmist is talking about resembled how God moved in a much greater way for us later in history, uh, for the church. The Bible makes these connections all over the place 
between Exodus and our deliverance experience in Christ and the conquest, entering the promised land, and kind of what we get now spiritually when we believe in Jesus. One of those places is John 8, 34, when Jesus says, this is before the cross, but he's talking about what he came to do. He says in John 8, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is amazing, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. So for Jesus to bring up slavery language here, this is a great, another great exercise. Every time you see slavery language, Paul brings us up big time in Romans. Jesus talks a lot about it too in the gospel accounts. When he says slavery, he's not pulling that word out of thin air. When he talks about slavery, he's basically implying that a new exodus is coming. Because slavery, for, for the first audience here hearing this, the first thing I would have thought of is the exodus. Well, we were slaves beforehand, but now we're free. But Jesus is saying, no, you're not really free. You're not. You're enslaved to something much bigger, much greater, and it's sin. The biggest problem here, and it's, it's true, through and through the narrative, is not a people, it's sin. That's always the problem biblically, and Jesus highlights that here. And then in Luke 9 as well, it says, When Moses and Elijah appeared at the transfiguration in glory and spoke with Jesus of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So literally, it talks about a new exodus, which Jesus was going to accomplish at Jerusalem, which is where he died. And so the Bible teaches that when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, a new exodus occurred for everyone who believes. A new type of one, a much better one, a much greater one. One that the former one pointed to. The former one was always meant to give way to this latter one. We talk a lot about that here at Hiawatha because the Bible is really constructed around a series of pairs. And two exoduses are one of those pairs. There's a former exodus and a latter exodus. A physical one and a spiritual one. The former one was never meant to, to be alone. It was always meant to foreshadow the latter one. And Jesus talks about that here in a couple places in John and Luke and many other places too in the New Testament. But that gives you an idea. If that's brand, if this is a new concept to you, this gives you an idea of a taste of how the New Testament looks back and reads the old things, the old stories in light of what happened now in Christ, what he really came to fulfill and accomplish. So as we go back then to Psalm 136 and read this little section about this poetic section about how great God's love was in the exodus and in the conquest and how he killed the enemies of God's people and how he made a way for them into this land flowing with milk and honey and provided for them, led them in the wilderness and gave them food and all these great concepts of provision and salvation. When we go back and do that and read that, we too can be grateful for that. It's not wrong to be grateful for how God moved in the Old Testament and thank Israel, or thank God with Israel in a sense then, Uh, for these great works. Uh, But we also have to move past that. God moved mightily there and saved mightily there, but what we should be especially grateful for is how he later worked through Jesus who fulfilled those passages and events. Our enemies are no longer Pharaoh, the king of Og or the king of Bashan. It's sin. The deliverance we need is no longer from a country or a people. It's from sin. And the New Testament makes that clear. Like in Psalm 136, God's love is connected with this new deliverance. God's love is shown most fully at the cross. So the psalmist is remembering how loving God was to deliver Israel up from Egypt in a much greater sense than a a better sense as Christians. We should look at that and and see a a type or a picture of a worshiper being thankful for a God who saves and seeing his love in that salvation. The new exodus that we experience now as Christians. A couple of places you see this love connected with the cross is John 15, 13, where Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Greater love has no one than this, 
that someone lay down his life for his friends. Lots of different types of love in the world, but the greatest kind is sacrificial. Jesus isn't downplaying or saying those types of love that are not sacrificial are not from God or not important. He's just saying the best form of love is sacrificial. And the best form of that kind of love is when Jesus does it. Because he's God. And he does it for all of us. So God loves us. How? He died for us on the cross. That's where we see his love most perfectly and purely. There's no other place because there's no greater love. That's when he sacrificed himself for us. That's how we know at the highest level that there is a God and his love in that manner endures forever. Romans 5.8 as well. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How do we know God loves us? He died for us. Again, this is how he shows us his love. He, show, he wants us to know that he loves them. He wants, just like we'd show someone that we love, that we love them through words or some act of service or a gift. God is showing us that he loves us by sending Jesus into the world to die in our place for our sins. A new exodus, a new deliverance, a new freeing experience away from the slavery of sin. That's what we get. That's how God has showed us this love. And, and uh, Eric read earlier from 1 John 4, which talks about this as well. This is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son into the world to be a sacrifice of atonement for our sins. So to go back to Psalm 136 then, to use Psalm 136 language, when we look back on this as Christians, this is the type of things we have to have in mind. Because this, this is the goal of these words in Psalm 136. This is what it's pointing to. We've got to see Christ in this and say, how has God's love fully come into the world? How has a new type of exodus and God's love in that fully been manifested 2,000 years ago? And remember that and celebrate that and never forget that. And remember, that's the type of love that will never leave you. The type of love that God, the type of love that will never ever end is the cross. That's how God's love at the highest level and that love will never ever ever be revoked. It will never leave you. It's not the best news in the world. It's not just a vague abstract kind of love. It's a specific kind of love. It's love shown at the cross. That's the type of love that will endure forever and ever and ever for everyone who believes. It can never be taken away. It's God's to give. Because we don't earn it, we're never underneath the idea that it can be, it can be removed. It's God's to give. And he gives it to, it, gives it to us freely as a gift. So that's the type of love that will never, ever be taken away. When we're faithless, the Bible says, he remains faithful in 2 Timothy 2.13 and in Romans 8.38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That last part is key. The love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will be able to separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, it specifies it. This is what God's love is. It's Jesus. It's the cross. It's grace. It's deliverance from sin. Not a vague kind of love, a very, very, very specific kind. It's that type of love that we will never, ever lose when we cling to Christ. So, uh, back to Psalm 136 again, and actually with this greater idea which we see spill over into the New Testament, getting specific with the way God shows his love is very, very biblical. It's consistent with this psalm and New Testament theology as well. God's love is salvific. That's what the psalmist is saying. God's love is great, and it's saving kind of love. And so he remembers that, and so should we. The fulfillment of those things that the psalmist looked ahead to. 
And so that leads me then to the third thing today, the third affirmation, which is thanksgiving should thusly be a huge, huge part of the Christian faith. Thanksgiving, giving thanks to God should thusly, in this way, be a huge part of the Christian faith. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Some of you wrestle with that even today. What's the will of God for my life? Well, the Bible says it in part right here. Be a thankful person. That's what he wants. He wants thanksgiving. Alan talked about that too in reference to Psalm 50 earlier. He wants thanksgiving. And the only way to be thankful really is to understand what's, what, he, what God is like, right? What he's been get, what's, we've been given, what he has given us. There's this direct, uh, inextricable connection between those two things. Understanding well what salvation is how great a gift the cross is, and being a thankful person. If one goes down, the other goes down with it. It's like a dumbbell. On one side, you've got understanding the gospel, really getting what God is like, really understanding his love, really understanding what it meant that God died on a cross for your sins, and being a thankful person. You can't tip it like this. You just lower it steadily, if you're strong, I guess, right? But you just lower it steadily, and the dumbbell goes down very evenly. They're connected. Always, biblically, they're connected. And so you have this, you have this call then First Thess 5, be thankful in all circumstances, this is God's will, which pulls actually really well from the last couple of weeks in Philippians 2, which called us to be peace-filled and content in whatever circumstances we face in the gospel, in the fact that we are loved and can never lose that divine love when we're in Christ. Colossians 3.15b just says very simply, and be thankful as well. And so you, so you see this, this common, this general command, imperative given to the church be thankful people Um, but you also see as we go back to psalm 136 and see in the new testament as well like we've been talking about you see it get more specific too but but there's a progression a couple of levels to this so on one level thank god for physical blessings that's one thing you see again back in the psalm you also see it here generally like in a passage like colossians 3:15. you see just be a generally thankful person james 1 says all good gifts are from above so anything good in your life right now anything at all You could be a Christian or even not a Christian here today, and this is still true for you. If you're not a Christian, you just don't see it as from God, but if you're a Christian, you you generally do, unless you forget, which we all do too sometimes as well. So you've got to be reminded of this. But all good things are from above. If anything good is going in your life right now, it's a gift from God, period. All good gifts are from God. He's that in control. He's not aloof. The Bible teaches he's that sovereignly providential, that in control. So just pause and give thanks Sometimes we just have to stop what we're doing. And and that, by the way, I think is an important thing too, which I'll mention now before I forget. Giving thanks is a very active thing. When we talk about giving thanks biblically, it's not being passively grateful. Although it's not bad to be passively grateful, but that's not what the Bible says. Because the psalmist is saying something. This would have been sung in worship. This would have been announced. This would have been preached to self constantly in the old context and, and in the new as well, in the new covenant era. It would have been heard so giving thanks is a very proactive thing. You, you just stop what you're doing so that you can focus on giving thanks. Say, God, thank you for this. I wouldn't have had it without you. You're the giver of this. It reminds you of how much you've been given. It's actually a really worshipful thing to stop and just, even just write down. My wife is, uh, I know some of you ladies are doing this too, but reading a book on, which I, the, the title's uh, skipping my mind, but um, reading a book on Thanksgiving, writing down things you're thankful for, and uh, 1,000 gifts, yeah, thank you, which is great. And so uh, Aletha's been doing that. Some of you uh, ladies have too. It's great. Uh, very worshipful. It reminds you how much you've been given. And so Aletha's been bringing myself in and my kids in, and we've been trying to do this together. 
a little bit as well, just writing down, I think, a thousand things right over a few-month period to try to get that much on paper. It's really cool. And if you want to do that, that's awesome. Do that. Uh, it's, it's a worshipful concept. And you see the psalmists do this as well. On a general level, he's saying in Psalm 136.25, God is the God, God who gives food to all flesh. So he's just thankful generally for food. And in Psalm 136.6 with creation, he's the God who spread out the earth above the waters. So he made the earth that we walk on. He made the stars. He made the cosmos. He made all the animals. He made us. And so flowing from that or related to that is the idea that everything that exists is, is because of him. And so everything we experience, whether we're just standing in awe of creation itself or something that just is a part of creation, something very specific or general, we're called to be thankful for, recognizing that it's God who gives us and it reminds us of his goodness and his generosity. So that's the first thing. Thank God for physical blessings like Psalm 136 does and like we're called to generally in the New Testament as well. But this is the key. We have to get more specific than that as well. If we stop there, we've missed it. We can't just be general with our thanks. We have to get more specific too. Thank God, in other words, for more important spiritual blessings. Thank God for general blessings. We try to do this all the time at dinner when we pray for our food teach our kids this, but it's, you know, it's a huge reminder for us as well. Thank you, God, for this food you've given it, but thank you all the more for the cross. That's my greater food. I want to drive it into my kid's head before they, you know, get me sick of it probably by the time they're 18, but I don't care. It's good. I hope it's, I hope it's uh, you know, repetitive in a sense because I want them to memorize that and understand that there's a relationship between general and specific biblically. You can thank God for things generally, but you've got to get over here to the specifics, to the cross, because it's a, it's a greater blessing and because the Bible does. The Bible talks about Thanksgiving. That's where it gets. And so we've got to be more specific. Thank God for more important spiritual blessings. David Powell, in his book, Thanksgiving, he surveys the, this motif of Thanksgiving all the way through the Bible. It's a great little book if you're uh, interested. Uh, but David Powell says on this issue, when Thanksgiving is grounded in salvation history, the call to give thanks is no longer understood primarily in psychological terms. In an age when spirituality is defined primarily through the lens of subjective sentimentalism, the call to thanksgiving is the act of remembering God through his mighty acts provides a much-needed correction in our understanding of the development of our lives in the Spirit. As a covenant people, we are to look to God as a source of all power and goodness, and we need to practice acts of remembering as we move our attention away from ourself as the criterion for truth to what God did for us through his beloved son. Basically what he's saying, he's outside the context here, of course, of Psalm 136, so this is bigger, but what he's saying is, this is not just about being a thankful person. The Bible's not just talking in psychological terms or behavioral terms here. It's not just saying, do better at being thankful. It's not what the psalm is saying. Going back to Psalm 136 is a great example of this, actually. It's not what it's saying. It's calling people to be thankful, but... Really, it's a lot more about God than us, right? It's a lot, more, a lot more ink's given over to what God has done than what we are to do. And if anything, what we are to do is in response to what he has done, not, not before his response. We don't move him. He moves so that we do something in response to it. That's what he's saying. We can't understand Thanksgiving purely in a psychological or behavioral level. It's more than that. The psalmist gets much more specific than that. He moves from general to specific, and so should we. So one of the things that we can do then pulling from this and some of the stuff we talked about earlier is we can even use some of the Psalms saving language and this will help you hopefully some of you that are brand new or newer to using the Psalms to pray through or using the Psalms to see Christ in and the gospel in this will 
be an example of this. We could talk a lot about this. I'll give you four things quick. Using the Psalms saving language to remind us poetically of what God has done for us in Christ. This is how we are to read them because this is how the New Testament authors read them. Again, go back and look at this. It's a great exercise. Going back and seeing Christ typified, foreshadowed, a glimpse of salvation way back here tucked away in this poetic section of the Old Testament. Here are some ways we can do this. When we go back, for example, in verses 17 and 18, when we read, to him who struck down great kings and killed mighty kings, that should remind us of how Jesus has struck down and killed our sin on the cross, because he has. The Bible teaches that. He has struck down and killed our great enemies, the kings, that, that the peoples that threatened us, which is an ultimate spiritual thing. Or when we read in verse 14, he made Israel pass through the midst of the waters, which is a part of their exodus out of Egypt, when they crossed through the Red Sea behind Moses, and the waters closed in on Pharaoh and the, uh, the Egyptians who were chasing them, their enemies. When we read that, it should remind us of how much Jesus has made us escape from sin. Again, New Testament teaching, the word escape is given all the time uh, to what has happened now for us in Christ. We've escaped from sin. We've experienced a new exodus. It should remind us of that, how we've been freed from sin clutches, sin's clutches. And just like Israel rejoiced when they got through the waters and saw all of Pharaoh's army drowned, looked back on them, and just they rejoiced in God for saving them, so should we look back and see the waters close over our sin. And remember, they are no more. They don't, they're gone. That's why the Bible says your sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. He won't remember them. We've been saved at that level. I don't care what you've done. The cross is bloody for a reason. Jesus, the, God had to die for a reason. This is how he redeemed. God, the perfect man, he became a man first, then he died in our place. He went to that level. It's amazing. And so that's, that's what it should remind us of, among other things. Third, in verse 16, he led his people through the wilderness. When we read that, it should remind us of how Jesus is with you right now, providing for you, caring for you, as you prod towards the eternal rest he's giving you in himself. And then finally, in verse 21, when we read, he gave the land, he gave provision as an inheritance, this should remind us that God has given you shelter and food spiritually now. The Bible talks about Jesus as an inheritance. Again, not pulling that, that term out of thin air. You know, it, it's, it's intended to point us back to, oh yeah, Israel got an inheritance. When Jesus says he's a new inheritance, or when Peter says that about Jesus, when we get that, he's saying we get it on a greater level now. We, we get, it's like we're in the, the land spiritually. We're in this place where God is now because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. He's taken all the obstacles between us and God away through his blood. And now Christ himself is our ultimate land, our ultimate inheritance. But it should also make us look to the future when this will be fully realized at the highest level, a new heavens, a new earth, where we'll dwell face to face with Christ forever. It should make us think of that too. And maybe finally, I highlighted some of the active words here. Notice throughout the psalm, and this is four examples, but notice how God is doing everything in this passage you don't see people do anything except respond right he's doing everything he's striking down enemies he's making israel escape he's leading he's giving when we see those things we have to this is even back in the old testament this is not just a new testament concept grace it's all throughout scripture god saves we don't this should remind us that we're saved by grace not by what we do it's amazing this is this is the type of god that we serve that we bend the knee to and say, redeem me. I've got nothing. I bring nothing to the table spiritually. Empty-handed. This is what he's like. And, and the Psalms are written this way. God writes them this way to remind us of this. We can't leave Psalm 136 and think, 
aren't I awesome? You know, it's impossible, right? It's impossible. That's the whole point. We leave thinking, look what God has done. I'm just so thankful for the way he is and for what he has done. If I do anything, it's just going to be a response. It's not going to be intended to move him and to turn his head. It's just going to be, wow, God is just great. God saves. So again, in summary here, the point is not to all of this, and as we expand back and just look at the big picture about thanksgiving throughout the scriptures, the point is not to do better at being thankful for things. The point is, Jesus has saved you from your sins. In your spiritually lowest state, to borrow from the Psalms language, he's done that for you. And be thankful for that. Respond to that. You see the difference? It's not just do better at being thankful. We can't understand this in behavioral terms. The Bible doesn't do that. The point is, Jesus has saved us from our sins. It's amazing. He loves us. And his love in that will never, ever, ever come to an end. It will never be taken away. Be thankful for that. That's the point of all of this. That's why we have to be careful and, and to caution ourselves against seeing this strictly in law-based terms because it's actually not. We can, we can read it that way. Our law-based tendencies can read it that way, but really that's not the point. The difference is, really, too, you can see how a simple call to be thankful, if I were just to stand up here and say, guys, we've got to do better at being thankful, th- that would be much less powerful to change your life than saying, look at what God has done for you. It's real. It's not a concept. It's a reality. And he has called you to not be thankful enough to save yourself from your sins, but just to be thankful because you already are, by God's grace. That will change all of our lives way quicker in much more of a substantial, God-glorifying manner than just simply calling us to try to do better at being being thankful. So the key here is that the, the psalmist knew his God and he knew his loving acts. You see how well he knew about the God that of the past? He wrote a very long psalm about him in a really cool way. He knew deeply and specifically about what God has done for him. And he rejoiced and he thanked that way. That made him thankful. And the same is true for us. The degree to which we know well about the cross, about the new exodus, the new conquest, the better type of provision that we get, spiritual provision that we get in Christ, grace, deliverance from sin. The the more that streams through our mind, the more we can be thankful like the psalmist is here for the former things. Does that make sense? That's the hard work we have to do. We've got to know this better. Again, the degree to which you know that is the degree to which you will be a thankful, biblically thankful, God-oriented, thankful, God-glorifyingly thankful individual. There's, there's no other way. Don't just be thankful on a broad level. Do that. That's great. But be more precisely thankful than that. More Christianly thankful by being a cross-centered, cross-focused um, type individual. And as we do that as a community, we'll respond here in song in a, in a couple minutes to end. As we do that as a community, though, uh, it's all the more of a testimony to a dead and dying world. When they see us being thankful amidst all circumstances, terrible ones, even really great ones, but not being elated by those things, coming back towards the middle and saying, I don't put my trust in great circumstances. I put them in God, who is with me through the stormy seas. So we do that. It's all the more of a testimony as a community uh, to a dead and dying world. It does not have that trust yet. But with our witness, as we tell people about this new exodus they can participate with, this better freedom, then uh, they too can pass through the sea ultimately on dry land and, and be free and rejoice and be thankful for how much God has destroyed, destroyed our sin and their sin. So let's pray.
God, thank you, Lord, for your grace today in the gospel. Thank you for uh, a chance to worship in song. Uh, and worship is all about that as well. It's about thanksgiving. We don't sing about us, really. We sing about you and what you've done, uh, just like you read about so much in the Psalms. And so help us to respond in that way. Help our spirituality uh, to reflect the psalmists here, uh, to be wor- worshipful and thankful people, but specifically in light of your love, and more specifically than that, the love we see at the cross. Uh, which is what this psalm is ultimately all about. So uh, thank you, Lord, for that today. Thank you. There's no greater love than sacrificial love and no greater sacrificial love than what you've shown on the cross. You save us by what you've done, not by what we do. Forgive us our tendencies to focus on self, to, idol- to make ourselves an idol and, and to save ourselves, God. Forgive us that. Take it away. And may we be more inclined uh, to look to you uh, day in and day out uh, through the thick and thin of life. We love you. It's all about you. Thank you for being so amazing, so great. Uh, Help us to sing now and and just worship uh, for what you've done. Your love uh, does endure forever. We thank you for that. Amen.